Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by LinkedIn and Privacy. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Jason Snell. Hi, Stephen. How you doing? I am good. How are you? Uh, doing great. This is a, a very a St. Jude-themed episode of Liftoff, at least at the start, because we've got two things going on, one Relay FM related and one space related, but they're mm-hmm. both about St. Jude. So why don't you explain uh, what the Relay related thing is? Okay. Yeah. So it is uh, National Childhood Cancer Awareness Month, and we are raising money for St. Jude. St. Jude treats kids with cancer without charging their families anything for treatment, for travel, or for food. And that is all made possible thanks to donations from regular people like me and you. You don't have to go to space to donate to St. Jude. Uh, as of this recording, we're at about $521,000 raised for the hospital, which is absolutely just a massive amount of money. And thank thank you all who have donated. If you haven't donated, there's still plenty of time. There's a link in the show notes to stjude.org slash relay. And Jason, we're coming off the big podcast-a-thon, our big eight-hour live event. That's right. That was a that was a huge thing. I think as a result, your iPhone is in a fuzzy case. It was. Now I'm. Uh, oh, oh, it's it's Android day now. It's Tuesday. You're free now. You're on Android instead. Yeah, for the rest <laughs> of the week. So using my a Pixel phone on the week of new iPhones. So that's that's fun. Yep, that's all for charity. That's the that's important right. thing. It's all for St. Jude. Mm-hmm. That's that's what matters. And during the podcastathon. Uh, and, uh, you know, kind of the days leading up to it and the day after it, Inspiration 4 was going on. So they were in orbit while we were doing our live show, and they splashed down a Saturday, kind of late afternoon, uh, Eastern mm-hmm. time in the Atlantic Ocean, and everyone is safe and sound, which is great news. Yeah, I was at a college football game when they, Me too. <laughs> when they splashed down. <laughs> we uh, weren't so at the same game. And if we games. were not at the same game, different different games, different conferences. Uh, so yeah, it it all uh, happened with Inspiration Four. They spent three days in orbit before splashing down in the Atlantic. Um, their top altitude is about three hundred sixty six miles, five hundred ninety kilometers. That's higher than the International Space Station, which is kind of fun. So they got a little, they got a nice view, a nice little altitude view, um, and a little Guinness Book of World Records kind of note here. Um, at the start of their mission, when they reached orbit, there were a record number of human beings in Earth orbit. There were 14 people in Earth orbit because the four on Inspiration4 were there, of course, the seven on the International Space Station. And there were also three Chinese astronauts on the, I think it's single module that they're building it, Chinese Space Station. Now, the Chinese astronauts, I think, left like not too long after inspiration four went to orbit so it didn't it wasn't for very long maybe a day maybe a little less but uh they they did set the record for the most human beings in orbit with uh the two space stations and inspiration four so that's a kind of nice little bonus for their for their uh their journey as they get to be part of a, a space record it's really cool i mean in addition to being the first all civilian spacecraft uh the youngest american in space uh, this is like a, just a, a cherry on top for me. 14 people is a lot of humans. It's That'd a be a humans. lot of people standing around in my office, you know? I mean, let's say we break that record sometime soon, but like, I like it for now. That's good. It's uh, more humans in space. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's good. I mean, okay, most in orbit and most in space, like right now, like you could, 
I don't know how you would calculate that. Like if somebody w- was in a suborbital and they went up and back down, you'd add them, but only momentarily. Like that's a pretty, I, it seems unlikely, like in orbit until we get people going to the moon and stuff when they're out of orbit and then humans in space is humans in orbit, humans in space, kind of pretty similar concepts for now, for now. For now. For now. The goal of Inspiration4, of course, was to raise money and awareness about St. Jude. Yeah. Um, Nice of them to launch in Childhood Cancer Awareness Month, right? Perfect fit. Perfect timing. Stealing the thunder from Relay FM, but that's fine. It's all for a good cause. We're all going in the same direction. Um, They said that they had uh, thus far raised more than $160 million toward the goal of $200 million. I think the guy who paid for the mission threw in $100 million of his own, and then they raised $60 million publicly. Um, When uh, Elon Musk, though, uh, basically, I think when they landed, he mm-hmm. he he said he tweeted that he'd be good for another fifty mil, so that would put him over the top. So, uh, yeah, it must be nice to just be like throwing around fifty million dollar donations to St. Jude like that. Yeah, I'd love to do it. Uh, I cannot do that, but uh, no. good, good good on Elon. I mean, that really we're, was amazing to see. We're working on a different level with the Relay FM campaign. That's still very good. It's not you know, it's not send people to space money. Well, not yet. We don't have that yet. You know, yep. space gets cheaper. We raise more money every year. At some point, I know they'll meet. At some point, we're going to send a Relay FM listener to space. You heard it here first, first folks. <laughs> you have to donate more to come back, though. That's the problem. Oh, it's to, a one way. Uh, yeah, that's right. It's an upsell. You need I a think. matching donation to get you down. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Apparently, while they were up there, they talked to Tom Cruise. I, th- I thought that was an interesting tidbit. They had a. They talked to Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise you know, theoretically might be making a movie in space at some point. So I wonder if he was asking how that was going and whether he should uh, do it or not. I don't know. Um, The capsule that they use, by the way, is going to be used on another commercial mission. uh, This one purchased by Axiom Space, and it will go to the ISS. That This same crew dragon will go to the ISS with that commercial mission where they'll have an astronaut and three paying passengers. Um, uh, And, uh, you know, Ultimately, when it's decommissioned, wouldn't it be nice if that crew dragon was uh, put on display at St. Jude? Wouldn't that be great? It'd be great. I, I asked about it uh, during the podcastathon. I've not gotten an answer yet, but maybe one day. I think it'd be really cool. Yeah. Or maybe maybe uh, if they decommission that uh, the Falcon Nine yeah. that it rode on, they could they could put that at St. Jude. That would look again. great. A rocket, the little rocket, uh, yeah. little rocket uh, garden gallery at uh, St. Jude. I'm all I'm all for it. All right, so I want to talk uh, a little bit about this uh, study I ran across on NASA's website, and it jumped out at me because it's a fun example of NASA research reaching beyond spaceflight. You know, obviously that that's NASA's primary primary thing, but the agency often talks about how its research and its knowledge that it gathers affects and improves life here on Earth for everybody. I thought this was like a really nuts and bolts example of it. So this comes out of the Fatigue Countermeasures Lab at NASA Ames Research Center, so not far from you. Yep, those are my guys. Yeah, Team team Ames over there. In, yeah, uh, yep, Bay California. Area, woo! <laughs> and uh, that group, uh, that lab, works on, uh, obviously, like pilot and crew... Um, fatigue issues uh, oftentimes we've talked a lot about this going through the mercury gemini and apollo missions but it's true now as well you don't always get the best sleep when you're on a mission and trying to do things to increase sleep increase the quality of sleep make decision making when you're sleep deprived making that easier and safer this fatigue countermeasures lab works on all of that sort of stuff 
And they recently wrapped up a study on self-driving cars and driver tiredness. So kind of bringing that down where the rubber meets the road. Mm. So the team looked at whether people on ordinary sleep schedules would show more sleepiness if they were simply along for the ride in a self-driving car or if they were, and this is how the article puts it, uh, trying to find it, I think it's like manually controlling the car, (laughs) so actually driving. Their research is is pretty interesting. I think it makes sense. I I, I think it's what I would have guessed is that when uh, people don't have uh, enough sleep, which is a lot of people, the CDC says that uh, most Americans don't get the recommended seven to eight hours of sleep per night uh, that's recommended. And so they had this uh, these three experiments. Each one was about 45 minutes long, and they were in a driving simulator. So in the first one, they had full control of the simulator. So they were driving it. They had the steering wheel, gas, brake, everything. Uh, the second one, it had self-driving mode. Uh, and they had no control over the vehicle, but were instructed to keep their hands on the steering wheel, which, of course, is like what Tesla says in their, right. in their um, autopilot mode. Mm-hmm. And so here, they're holding onto the steering wheel. The car is driving itself. But in front of them, basically, it's a very boring drive. So like a flat drive, two-lane road, not much traffic, no stop signs. You know, we've all been there, right? You're driving in the middle of nowhere, and it's kind of easy to nod off because you're just it's the same over and over. Through these uh, sessions, they were all hooked up so scientists could see and monitor brain activity and eye movement and compare that to, to how your brain activity and eye movement looks like when you're falling asleep. And so after these sessions, they would self-report their sleepiness level and it would be compared to the data that was actually gathered from their bodies. And the results showed that just supervising the vehicle not actually driving, made participants feel more sleepy. So when you're not, you know, wired into what you're doing, uh, maybe it's a little bit easier to, to lose focus and that makes, you, that makes you tired, which I think, I think makes sense. I think that's when I started reading about this, is kind of where I thought it would go. And, um, and so sort of their research says that self-driving cars uh, are safer if you've had more sleep basically that if you don't have enough sleep people of course are are at risk in both scenarios but self-driving cars may make it actually a little bit worse Uh, i thought that was really interesting because we talk a lot about tesla and apple and uber and ford and chevy like all these companies have or are working on autopilot or self-driving vehicles and of course the the future dream is right you just get in a car and it you know it goes where you tell it and you can you know read the news on your phone or watch a movie or talk to your kids and not worry about what the car is doing but in this in-between phase that i personally think will be in for decades and decades and decades where a car is partially or maybe even fully capable of driving itself but you still have to oversee it it's not a, a robot that takes you somewhere it's a you know it's still a car shells a steering wheel uh that in-between state can be um can be risky. So I just thought it was really interesting. Uh, I thought it was a really cool example of NASA using its research and its facilities to uh, look at something that is, you know, down here on the ground that affects a lot more people than, uh, you know, something like, what is it like when you're on an Artemis mission and you're tired and you have to deal with landing on the moon? So kind of Mm -hmm. a cool story. And uh, I wanted to share about it. Well, the people 
are the common bond, right? Like people are are yep. are people regardless. I think it's interesting here. The idea here is that uh, you're right. You're sort of what we would expect, which is if you're if you're sleepy and you're not having to pay attention so much, you don't you you, you don't stay mm-hmm. awake. Like if you've ever driven late at night and gotten home, like this happens to me when I come back from a late night flight from you know come back from the airport and it's midnight i can't sleep right away because i have had to focus for that whole drive and unsurprisingly if you don't have to focus quite so much you're going to be um sleepier so i guess the the lesson for outer space is how do you keep either you have your astronauts sleep properly and or you keep their brains engaged in a way that they might not be if it if their systems were totally automated yeah, it's uh, it's pretty cool. Anyone who's taken a boring college class knows about this too. Uh, yep. Oh yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so yeah, they're going to take this research and uh, apply it back to what they normally do, like you said, looking at astronauts, looking at their um, activity before sleep schedules, all that sort of thing. So kind of cool. Don't crash your your lunar no. car or your Mars car. No. You don't want to. Do don't want to do that. I mean, the the lunar rover. Be wide awake. I mean, your seats are basically fold out yard chairs you don't want to crash in one of those things you just go to sleep and it's so comfortable (laughs) they're made for that (laughs) all right uh speaking of the moon let me tell you about something else that's going on um nasa has announced uh the location the destination for the viper robotic rover now viper as we mentioned a while ago stands for volatiles investigating polar exploration rover okay that's pretty pretty good good. uh it is going to the nobile crater near the lunar south pole um this is actually nasa's first lunar rover like that's uncrewed you know not operated by a person not driven around by astronauts russia and china have had autonomous rovers before but this is going to be nasa's first um because nasa just sent some people there <laughs> to drive around like okay fine and, and they they send all the rovers yeah. to mars now uh so what uh, what is viper going to do it's going to look at the soil drill down and try to figure out basically what materials are on the ground at the south pole we have lots of data from orbit but what happens when you go look for yourself what th- this is sort of step two is let's see if the observations from orbit match up with what we see down on the ground so that's important obviously the goal here the whole idea of these south pole craters is that uh south pole of the moon craters can can be completely blocked from the sun so they may have and we believe there is e- there is evidence that there is ice there which would be very useful because you can melt the ice and do things with the water, uh, including drink it and make fuel out of it and all sorts of other things, make oxygen out of it. Great stuff, right? But you got to make sure that it's there. So um, they picked this particular crater because it's got varied terrain, but it's still gentle enough for this Viper rover to get around and not tip over. Um, Viper is solar powered, so um, it it can operate in complete darkness for about 50 hours at a shot. So basically it's going to dip into the darkness do its thing and then it has to come back out otherwise its battery will die Um, and it also has to be in line of sight with earth to communicate so there's lots of details about how viper is going to work but they picked the uh, destination for it it's they're shooting for late 2023 um, and if you're curious viper is about the size of a golf cart (laughs) 
uh, weighs about a thousand pounds, so 450 kilograms, and is being built by a company we've mentioned here before, Astrobotic, which is based in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. I yep. believe, and they were contracted by NASA to build this rover for NASA. So it's a commercial uh, mission of a different kind of sort, where they, they rather than having NASA supervise it with contractors, they basically said, Astrobotic, make us a rover, and uh, that's Viper. Yeah, this is this is really exciting. I mean, it is the uh, in some ways like the beginning of America's exploration on the South Pole, where which has been talked about as Artemis landing spot forever. Yeah, and and like you said, it puts uh, NASA uh, into the the sort of same operations as China and Russia have been with landers on the moon, where we sort NASA sort of just skipped over that. We went and then. We've done a lot of stuff in orbit, and but all of our robotic missions that are uh, on the ground are on Mars, and so this is this is new for NASA, but not new for humanity. And uh, it will be one of many scientific landers and rovers that NASA has planned over the next decade or more. Yep, it's it's getting going. So Viper Viper has a destination now. That's good. You want to know where you're going. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's very important. Right now, we're going to go into an ad break. Okay, oh, I knew it. Good. Yeah, because it's in the document destination. It's in the it's in the South Pole of the of the show notes. <laughs> Today, many small business owners are busier than ever. Time spent searching for and interviewing the wrong candidates for a job opening is time better spent growing a business. And that's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to get the candidates worth interviewing faster, and it's free. I've done a lot of interviewing over my years, Jason. I'm sure you have as well. Hiring people, hiring the right person. Sure. It's so important, especially in a small business. You really got to make sure that you've got the right person for the, you know, the right person for the right job. And LinkedIn Jobs is a great tool to reach that goal. You can create a free job post in minutes to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. That's a lot of human beings. Focus on candidates with the skills and experience you need. Use screening questions to get your role in front of people who are the most qualified for your position. Then use the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates worth interviewing faster. Every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn. It's a great place to host your job listings Post yours for free at linkedin.com slash liftoff. That's linkedin.com slash liftoff to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Our thanks to LinkedIn Jobs for the support of the show and Relay FM. We are foregoing the SLS segment, Jason. I know you were like gearing up to, oh, s- no. to sing to everybody, but... I thought... It was happening. It's been a quiet fortnight in the SLS. I was looking around, not not much going on that we didn't know about. So uh, I have this story that sort of pairs with my first one about NASA and automation and uh, sleepiness while driving. It's this big feature NASA's put together about the use of AR and VR in space. Huh. This is something we've talked a lot about in our sort of our day jobs as tech journalists, where all these tech companies are really spinning up their uh, VR and AR hardware and software. Uh, Facebook is there. Apple's rumored to be there. It's uh, it's a big deal. And these technologies are in use at the International Space Station across various hardware. Some of it's Microsoft HoloLens, 
which I saw one um, blow up in 2015. So rest in peace, Good that times. particular yeah. HoloLens. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but also uh, more standard VR sets that completely cover your eyes. The HoloLens is sort of like a mixed reality thing. And there's nine different ways that these are being used. I found them all interesting. Uh, I think I'm going to start with the ones that are most like what we would do here. Um, and I think I think for me, the the most sort of common, like, Earth-like one is VR exercise. You know, you can't haul a Peloton bike up to the uh, space station. You just don't have room. But as anyone who has worked out, run, or ridden a stationary bike, no, it can be... It can be brutally boring, and uh, they are using VR headsets combined with virtual exercise routines and virtual landscapes to uh, keep those bike rides uh, more engaging. You know, when you're in a a microgravity environment, you've really got to work hard to keep muscle and bone strength up, and so there's a lot of exercise uh, when you're on board at the International Space Station. And uh, this VR exercise program is looking at ways of making that more compelling for astronauts and crew members, which is which is great. Imagine like lots and lots of stationary bike just in the ISS where you are all the time for long periods of time. I can imagine you might want something. I mean, I'm sure they can like look at a video or something like that, but. Uh, a more in- immersive thing where you're like actually riding through a landscape, that would be a huge, uh, it's got to be a much better way to do that. Oh, yeah. And I would imagine, too, it's a little taste of home, you know, because it's, it's so more encompassing than a video. I think it would be a nice, a nice break. Uh, the next one is AR maintenance. This is something that Microsoft in particular talks a lot about with the HoloLens. And Google's talked about it with Google Glass. You know, there's an like, industrial version of that still floating around somewhere where you are working on a complex task and the system or a team member can put things in your field of view. And so if you're taking uh, something apart and fixing it, you could have like a, a take apart guide or an exploded view of something so you can compare the documentation to what you're doing. You could have processes and steps shown to you. Uh, you could even use it because these have cameras on them to give a uh, point of view to another crew member or someone back on Earth to help you walk, w- help walk you through something maybe you haven't been trained on. Uh, huge in industry here, um, here on Earth. There's a lot of talk about that in manufacturing in particular, and they are using uh, that currently when maintaining and repairing some of the exercise equipment, mainly the treadmill aboard the International Space Station. And so you can strap this thing on. People can see what you see. They can provide you uh, visual cues and detail that you wouldn't have otherwise. Or you may have to, like, you know, have a book or something, you know, cards Velcro to the side of your arm to see them. And you can just have them in front of your face with this. So common, you know, something not too dissimilar from what we do here on Earth. But uh, I can see it being really useful on a, a long-term space mission where, you, you just can't be trained on everything, and this kind of gives you right. that information, you know, uh, as you need it. It's a visual manual kind of thing, yeah. which I like. It's because some also sometimes um, those kinds of visuals are better for learning how to do something than just reading. You know, we've all assembled flat pack furniture sure. before, is what I'm saying. Yeah, 
I got an Ikea shelf right over there that I wish I had some AR help with. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> would have been great. Where does go? <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, the next one is Pilot. It's a, uh, a joint investigation from the European Space Agency and the National Center of Space Studies in France. And it is using uh, VR, AR and VR to look into manipulating space hardware uh, like something like the Canada arm or even uh, approaching Soyuz spacecraft. Yeah. Right now, some of that's done from the station, some of that's done from the ground, but all of it is done remotely. And if you could have a view where you can see outside the station from all of these different angles and really get a full 360-degree view of what's happening, you have more information. And so this seems like one that... that definitely has legs and i think especially as we move maybe towards uh, the lunar gateway and beyond where you have uh you have greater communication delay between you and the ground maybe remote controlling things from the ground maybe isn't as feasible as it is in low earth orbit and so doing it from a board and doing it in vr so you have this full 360 degree view uh, may prove to be very useful. And so that's the the pilot program. Right. There's already, I mean, there's some version of this, like Mars rovers with binocular vision. They're like looking basically at 3D images in order to decide where to drive. That It's kind of VR for that, but it's not quite remote control because they're setting their images up. Although there are some, I, I know that there's one theory about, about exploring Mars with people that uh, proposes that we send people to one of Mars's moons where they would tether and then they would remote control in basically real time uh, robots down on the surface, which would be another kind of space VR thing, just because the, you know, your, your perception is going to be a lot better in a VR landscape than it is looking at a screen or something like that, especially because you, you're going to be able to see uh, depth and and stuff like that. So that's a cool idea. Yeah, definitely. Uh, There's also the ISS experience. This isn't so much as a, experimentation or or development of a new process but it is a it's a vr uh, let's call it an experience that's right in the name but it's a it's a series of vr films uh, shot over multiple months to document crew activities aboard the space station to give people a better feel for what that is like uh the feature goes into uh some more explanation that this may be used for for training and for uh sort of uh, mission planning so you can put people who are on the ground uh, through this experience and I've been in Huntsville where they have a partial mock-up of the uh, of the International Space Station but it's it's photographs it's not three-dimensional it is a uh, it's sort of a low-fi version of what they have uh, in orbit and bringing that into VR means that someone planning or someone troubleshooting something on the ground has um, more lifelike, uh, more lifelike information to work with. And so that's the uh, mm-hmm. the ISS experience. Makes sense. Uh, the uh, the other four are are really, or three of the four left are really about crew. Um, I don't want to say crew health, but like the way that crews operate in space. And so you have grip oh. and grasp. There are two um, 
ESA programs looking at how microgravity affects the ability to grip and manipulate small objects like tools. Uh, and then grasp is about uh, bigger objects. So when you reach out for an object, does the lack of gravity affect things like uh, depth perception and your uh, your own awareness of maybe how fast your body or an object is moving? And so you're in a VR headset. These things are programmed in, and then basically you uh, reach out for them or you click an input in VR when something is approaching you and they can compare those times and speeds. Those are both uh, done monthly for crew that are on uh, longer term missions. And so they're tracking those changes over time. See, does your ability uh, to detect depth perception, does that change over time? We know that vision changes in microgravity. Uh, We know that your body changes in microgravity. And so looking at how those things kind of combine is something that they're uh, very interested in, especially when we, again, talk about longer-term missions going to Mars and back, or even long uh, stays at Lunar Gateway. Understanding those changes, again, can help mission planning, can help uh, if someone needs to go and repair or troubleshoot something. It may change how you communicate with them about what they need to do or where they need to reach. So that is uh, grasp and grip. Okay, Vection is similar to that. It is basically tracking changes, um, not interacting with objects, but basically interacting with the space that you're in. So your uh, how well you self-evaluate the control and movement of your body in low-gravity environments. And then, uh, and then there's time perception, which are, again, monthly tests to see how well astronauts can keep, uh, basically keep mental track of how much time has passed. So they may be asked... Uh, you know, we're going to play a series of tones. How long did it take for those tones to play? How long was each tone? And again, that may be something else that is affected by microgravity, but also sleep changes. Uh, your circadian rhythm is all goofy when you're in orbit or beyond because you don't have the 24-hour cycle that we have here on Earth. And so a lot of these are tracking these sort of small changes over time because... It may not be a big deal at the International Space Station, but longer term, it may be uh, a real problem. So those are some of the ways that this technology is being used in orbit. And I, just, I found it all really, really interesting because some of the stuff probably wasn't even possible without this technology. And a lot of this is still in its early days. We've talked a lot about that uh, on our other shows. And so seeing how this progresses and how NASA can use like HoloLens and Oculus, these are just these are just like consumer things right it's just like it's just hardware that you or i could buy but co-opting it and using it for something in uh, a space mission is is always fun to watch yeah i do wonder also about um, more broadly on long-term space missions whether it's the iss or elsewhere just the idea of improving mental health by having people you know if you go into a vr and i know weightless makes it more complicated when you're weightless but like if you go into a vr space and feel like you're in a different space if that might help you you know, when you're in a very enclosed space for a long time, right? Like, would that be better? Hmm. And I don't know. It's it's an interesting idea just to use this technology to to help in all sorts of ways. So, thank you for the walkthrough. Yeah, yeah. Lots of uh, you know NASA doing uh, fun stuff in science this week. Sure, always fun. So we're gonna take our second break, and then we're gonna get into some uh, late breaking 
changes at NASA that are uh, pretty interesting. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Privacy.com. We've all had that moment where you've realized your debit card number or credit card number has been used without your permission. Well, privacy is a tool that makes it easy to manage these aspects of life online while keeping your most important information safe. Privacy lets you generate virtual numbers, so it masks your real bank information, so you don't have to worry about those numbers being given out to people you don't know online or in retail and here in real life. So this gives you tons of control. You can decide who can charge your card, how much they can charge against it, how often they can charge against it. You can create single-use or merchant-locked cards. This card can only be used at this retailer. Nowhere else can it be used. And it, it builds all these protections in for you. And that's why services like privacy are important, so you don't have to deal with the problems of your actual card number being stolen and used. Privacy is partnered with 1Password, uh, so you can create, use, and save privacy cards directly from within the 1Password dashboard. All these cards have the same security benefits as other privacy.com cards, so you can set those same spending limits, set those same modes or locked cards, and create them whenever you want. So head to privacy.com slash liftoff to sign up for an account. New customers will automatically get $5 to spend on their first purchase. That's privacy.com slash liftoff to sign up now. Our thanks to Privacy for their support of the show and Relay FM. All right, we have some news that is hard to interpret, yeah. actually, but it's about people we've talked about here before, and it has a lot to do with management at NASA, so it's worth talking about. Uh, so basically, NASA is bringing back uh, a person who worked for Bill Gerstenmaier, who was the head of a human spaceflight at NASA for a long time. And this person's name is Jim Free. He is being put in charge of what they're calling Exploration Systems Development Mission Directorate, which is basically Artemis. Um, he, uh, Jim Free, was the director of NASA Glenn from 2013 to 2016. Before that, he worked on the service module of the Orion spacecraft. He was the manager of that part of Orion. So this is sort of, uh, you know, in the ballpark of being Artemis sure. related. Um, so so that that's like adding adding someone to the team, right? Like that's good. Um, there's there's some boilerplate from NASA that you threw in here. Do you want to do the honors? I just want to, to read this. Uh, remember, this is written by a government <laughs> agency. You'll be shocked. Government bureaucracy. Yep. Creating two separate mission directorates will ensure these critical areas have focused oversight teams in place to support and execute for mission success. That's all one sentence. Yep. All the rest of this is the second sentence. This approach with two areas focused on human spaceflight allows one mission directorate to operate in space while the other builds future space systems. So there's a constant cycle of development and operations to advance NASA's goals in space exploration. Okay. So ESDMD, ESDMD, the exploration mm -hmm. system, ESDMD. ESDMD. Uh, so that's Artemis. It, uh, okay. Yeah. And, and then there's the rest of it. It's just, just everything else? Which, like. <laughs> yeah, which is, is Kathy Leaders, who we've talked about, which uh, ha she's been in charge of crewed spaceflight at NASA for a while now. Um, 
what this means is that she's not in charge of the Artemis stuff anymore. She's in charge of everything else, which is basically like International Space Station and commercial crew stuff. Um, and so one way to read this is she got demoted, essentially, because they took a bunch of stuff away from her. And rather than... This, there's some spin here. Like uh, Eric Berger at Ars Technica, who covers this better than anybody, he even he seems a little bit stumped about how to read this, at least initially. He has a NASA source that said that leadership at NASA has actually been a little bit thin and that having two experienced managers running human spaceflight is better than one and that this is the reason for it. Um, there's, he also talked to an industry source that criticized the move and said it's going to add more bureaucracy and could slow down commercial space. Um, so like how to read it. I also had that thought of like, well, you could have hired somebody and had them work for Kathy leaders in charge of that. But if they really wanted this Jim free, who had been rumored at one point to take over for Kirsten Meyer, um, and apparently was liked by a lot of people, but then he left to go work in the private sector. And so, um, he was out of NASA. Maybe they, they really wanted to bring him back. But he wasn't going to work for Kathy Leaders because he viewed himself as a mm. peer or whatever. Like hiring, right? Hiring is complicated. I get that. Yeah. But uh, Leaders has gotten a lot of credit for what she's done uh, involving the human space flight program at NASA. However, I got to point out also she was in charge when they chose SpaceX alone for the moon landing. And that caused a whole kerfuffle. Uh, and this move means she's not involved in that anymore. So I wonder if that's part of this, too. Free has a lot less familiarity with commercial space, um, it, it seems to be, than leaders. But now he's in charge of Artemis, which has a lot of commercial space things, including, you know, obviously choosing the lander. So what does it all mean? I don't know. You know, I, I don't know. I can see the argument that this is bringing in more management because things have gotten complicated. Um, but I think it only that only makes sense if you accept that this is a really great hire and he wasn't going to take uh, a, a mm -hmm. lesser role. And so this is how they got him. Um, but I am also raising a little eyebrow about this, this uh, turf being taken away from Catholic leaders. Who knows? Maybe she was like, this is too much. I don't know. It's it's possible. It's complicated. But given the controversy about the human landing system, I also have to wonder if there is a political calculus here about getting her out of the line of fire and putting somebody new in there. The, the other angle I thought about was this isolates Artemis in a way that it hasn't been. And, and while Artemis obviously has a huge commercial component to it, right? Like, they're not getting to the surface in their own hardware. That's going to be a commercial partnership. It does set Artemis apart from, in particular, commercial crew. And I just, I can't help but be a little suspicious of that with, with Bill Nelson's background and the, uh, the support that SLS, SLS in particular continues to have in the organization and the Congress that this insulates what Artemis is doing from some of these other, may I say, more progressive areas of development. Mm. And, yep. you know, I don't know if that's actually true or not, or if that's a reason, but I sure, that was sure my first thought of, oh, there's now a safety blanket around, <laughs> around Artemis and SLS in particular. Is that unfair? Do you think? I mean, I think it's, I think it's an open question. I, I think, um, 
I, some of this is curious too because it, who knows the details here but I, 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 we're all going to need to find out more but like Free is perceived as being part of Gerstenmeyer's team Gerstenmeyer is a, an executive at SpaceX now yeah so if the message for Artemis and for the human landing system is you know we're doing a little bit of a reset here having somebody who's tight with people at SpaceX is not going to necessarily make uh, the national team excited about that so I, I I don't know I I suspect there's a lot going on here that we don't know and I'm hoping that Eric Berger especially his sources will um, give him more on this as it goes but this is um, this is a way that they're choosing to restructure the the organization and um, if I had more confidence I think to your point if I had more confidence in what is going on with Artemis where it isn't part of this much larger thing involving the SLS and Congress and paying for things that aren't necessarily needed and the whole kerfuffle about the um, the HLS, I, you know, I might feel differently about it. But there's a lot of stuff going on here. And this feels like it's, um, again, it could just be, it's a good, it's a hire if they wanted to make a, another hire because they were a little bit thin. And if that's the, the, the line from a NASA source, maybe it is that simple, but it's hard to believe that it's something at this level that it's necessarily that simple yeah i mean there's definitely a a real possibility that her plate was just too full that's a lot of programs to keep up with and so right i mean my counter argument would be you could hire somebody to work for her and that's not what they did but it may be that they wanted to hire somebody and the level at which they wanted to hire it's also possible that she said why don't you do this i don't want to deal with this anymore like i don't want to i, I don't want to assume that this is done against her wishes, but it certainly is an interesting choice to make to pull stuff. Like, say what you will about this. The bottom line is that her portfolio is smaller yeah. than it was before. And I think that is an overall uh, negative change with this. Got to raise an eyebrow there for sure. So yeah, we're going to keep an eye on this. This broke just right before we sat down to record. So uh, that's a li- literally all we know about it. I think it will... It will take some time to see how these directorates take shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Nelson says that this puts NASA on a course uh, for the next uh, 20 years. Okay. Okay. I mean, the current state of the directorates, which he had say in when he was in Congress, that took place under the Obama administration. So these changes, at least in the last couple of decades, have been long lasting. And so we will see... Right. Uh, we'll see how this plays out. It may not mean any change in practice uh, that we see from the outside, but it certainly is interesting. So we wanted to touch on it today. All right. Well, that's what we do when we are finding out if they will be ensuring those critical areas that have focused oversight teams in place to support and execute for mission success and other buzzwords from bureaucrats. So yeah, never forget. It's a giant government bureaucracy, people. Never forget. If you want to find more about the stuff we spoke about, head to the website at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 159. You can find us on Twitter. Jason is there as Jay Snell, and you can find me on Twitter as ISMH. Don't forget that September is National Childhood Cancer Awareness Month, so be sure to donate at stjude.org slash relay. Jason, it's been fun, and uh, we'll be back in a fortnight, so say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, y'all.